0: of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be your host, three to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from the internationally renowned Radio City Docklands. And as we know, the internationally renowned Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, now, come back up on the show tonight, a fair warning. If you like the thought of 10-year-old children being thrown in prison, often without charge, then tonight's show is not for you. Shortly, we'll be joined once again by Leanne Carter from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. VALS and a number of other organisations across the country have drawn together for a number of years now as part of the Raise the Age campaign. There was a meeting of Attorneys General this week to talk about that, even though it wasn't actually formally on the agenda, it was on a part of a other business. Uh, So we'll find out what's happening with that campaign and what the Attorney-General's about the place are doing about this travesty. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined once again by the CEO of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations, Paul Patton. Uh, We'll cover issues around the Murray-Darling Basin, as we have quite a bit on this show, uh, and how it relates to traditional owner groups and First People Nations along that incredibly important, environmentally important part of Australia, but also the incredibly culturally important part of Australia for First Nation and traditional owner groups. So we'll talk to him about all that in the second half. Now, just a word before we get on with the show, um, before we get on the show, I just want to talk about what's been happening in this town that we uh, all love so much. In recent times, the place has been almost unrecognisable because of the level of hate the level of vitriol about this place we call Melbourne now. Speaking as someone from the Aboriginal community, I know a fair bit about the history of the protest movement for my people and have indeed attended numerous, very, very, very numerous rallies over the years. At those rallies, there has been anger, uh, justifiably, and I'm not here to use the triple to airwaves to mark as valid or invalid other people's anger about other things. But every rally that I've been to as part of the social justice movement, the Aboriginal land rights movement, or the other issues that affect us, have been a peaceful expression of resistance and sovereignty against a system or systems that for so long have repressed Aboriginal people. Repression in a real world way deaths in custody, treaty, land rights, rights of imprisonment, etc., etc. Pick your issue. All issues that have actually had an effect on your mob, your family, our um, reasons to hit the streets and get angry about. And that's what we've done for generations within the Aboriginal community. But here now in 2021, never before in this town have we seen such a violent rhetoric aimed towards our elected officials, the media, and at each other. There people calling for the Premier to be publicly hung, publicly hung, uh, we've had people turning up to homes of members of parliament and we have mock gallows being paraded through the streets of Melbourne. And the, re- the vitriol and the rhetoric that accompanies these scenes is something that we've never seen before. These scenes are unprecedented and come straight from the Trumpian playbook, a rhetorical playbook that eventually resulted in the storming of the US Capitol on January 6th of this year. Yep, that was just this year. Seems like a lifetime ago. The truly scary thing about all this, though, is not, is that we're not even in election year. You know, that'll be next year. And I feel that the the temperature of the rhetoric on the streets and with the elements of the media will continue to rise to boiling point. And never before have I had such an impending sense of doom when it comes to the possibility of real violence on our streets amassing while we look to enact our democratic processes. So we need to roll back the dial here before it's too late. We need to look at the way that Aboriginal communities, Aboriginal advocates have actually conducted themselves over generations now. We get the message out, but we do it in a peaceful and calm way. Yes, we get angry, but we never get violent, and we never, never elicit death threats towards our elected officials, the media, or the general public at large. Uh, As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au listening to The Mission on 102.7 FM, or maybe you're listening on the National Digital Radio Service uh, across the land, uh, you are more than welcome. And maybe you're listening on, a, I think it's a Thursday night, on the Koori Radio uh, up in Sydney through Redfern. All of you are more than welcome. This is a place for us all. Now, as I said at the top of the show, if you're all for throwing 10-year-old children in prison over, for often for months at a time, without charge, then perhaps the next conversation is not for you. When children this young are forced through a criminal process at such a formative age, they can suffer immense harm to their health, well-being, and future. 10 year old kids belong in schools and playgrounds, not placed in handcuffs, held in watchhouses, or locked in prisons away from their families, communities and cultures. Governments can change this by raising the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 years. These are not my words, but these are the words of the Raise the Age campaign, of which I'm a full supporter. In a statement released late on Monday, the meeting of attorneys generals who met this week agreed to support development of a proposal to increase the minimum age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12, including with regard to any carve-outs, timing and discussion of implementation requirements. They're going to discuss all of that. Fantastic. Wow. Big deal. The decision was announced as part of other business and was considered... Informally, so not part of the formal meeting and not part of the formal agenda. Here to discuss everything, Raise the Age is Leanne Carter. We've had her on the show just recently, but she's been laying it down thick for others to pick up. Leanne is a Wurundjeri Noongar woman and is also the statewide community justice programs leader at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, so she knows all the ins and outs around Raise the Age as well as is a a central member of uh, the Coalition to Raise the Age. Um, Leanne, welcome back to the mission.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on tonight.
0: Uh, Absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed having you on last time, and um, let's hope it's the same tonight. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, What are some of the forces at play here, Leanne? I mean, it would seem to most civil-minded people that, uh, you know, kids at the age of 10, Kids, even at the age of twelve, of course, don't belong in prison at the at their absolute most formative years of, of their life. They should be wrapped around in their culture. They should be at school. If they have um, issues, surely they're um they're health issues before their criminal issues. What are some of the issues that are preventing attorneys generals across attorneys general across the country from just taking the step to raise the age across most jurisdictions?
1: This is, this is a really confusing reason. Like, you just can't unpack what the actual reason for this is. About, you know, this announcement that they've made is, you know, in our opinion, just a cynical attempt by politicians to trick the public into saying, hey, yeah, you know, we actually care about young, young people. We want to make sure they stay out of prison. But at the same time, they're getting together to talk about a proposal about perhaps raising the age. So there's no commitment there, there's no it's an empty commitment. And they had this opportunity three years ago, and when they did up that report, there were nearly a hundred you know people that made submissions and medical and all the expert legal advice saying that at the bare minimum it should be fourteen. Internationally, it' you know it's fourteen. But for some reason they have just been consistently dragging their feet on actually raising the age. And at the same time, on the week that they actually refused, you know, to go ahead with the proposal to raise the age, they actually released the closing the gap initiative. And, and which is ironic when you think about them talking about, you know, we're gonna our intention is to close the gap of youth in prisons, you know, by you know, by um, 50%, or, you know, by 2031. But in all reality, if they lowered, uh, you know, if they actually raised the age of, you know, criminal responsibility, they would halve that. So it's it's a little bit of a, you know, mind minefield as to what they're actually thinking, given that they got so much expert, you know, advice in front of them and talking about, you know, as you said. These are young children. Their baby teeth are still falling out. They're taking lunch boxes to school. And, you know, it's been shown that prison, you know, negative in, negatively impacts on any young person's health and wellbeing. And, you know, when, when we're talking about where children should be, they should be safe, they should be in their home, and as you say, they should be wrapped around in their culture and their family and their community. So, it's really mind-boggling, to be perfectly honest, as to why they just can't take that step and make it happen.
0: It is truly bizarre. And to add sort of additional context to, you know, what we're talking about here, a child under the age of 13 cannot sign up for a Facebook account. A child under 12 years of age cannot board a plane unsupervised. And in some states, a child under 16 years of age cannot get their ears pierced without parental permission, and yet we can throw them in the slammer without charge.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, when, when we're talking about proposal, even at the age of 12, which doesn't even reach the minimum, right, like in one year there were over 600 kids, okay, locked up between ages of 12 and 13, okay? Now, if we were to look at even this, age of 12, 91% of them kids would still be in custody if this proposal, say, they went ahead with this proposal. It would have absolutely no impact whatsoever, none. So uh, you're sort of sitting back scratching your head going, well, you know how detrimental this is. You know that kids make, you know, they when we were kids, we, we made poor decisions, you know what I mean?
0: And, you know, speak, you know... Speak for yourself, Leanne. I never made any poor decisions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I won't ask you your supporting footy then, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're talking about very, very young kids that are still developing. That, you know, their brains are still developing. We, you know, they don't make good choices at times. And that's not to say that, you know, young people can't, you know, learn to make better choices and things. But I, you know... I'm just, I'm just a bit flawed at the, you know, as we say, at dragging the feet when so much evidence in, is in front of them. And the evidence is clear that, you know, children don't belong in prisons. Prisons are harmful. They do nothing for recidivism.
0: Well, we we know we know that uh, that uh, youth detention, um, out of home care, are all sort of gateways to, um, uh, to prison, and and the prisons themselves are kind of a, a embed. Um, crime and, and uh, a life of crime with people that become institutionalised in some of these um, settings. And this is just isn't, um, you know, uh, VALs or, or just MOBs saying this. You've got a very strong coalition of organisations and experts that are all calling calling for this.
1: Absolutely. And that's the thing is that they are medical experts. They are legal experts. They are, you know, people who work on the ground and in um, medical and disability fields. And we've got uh, lots of law firms and things like that on board with it. I mean, you know, the evidence. The evidence is clear. It's clearly there that they need to raise the age. That, you know, in if they don't, it's going to be much more, you know, detrimental and traumatic for these young people.
0: We've and, got, we've uh, got. And, sorry, go on, Lance. Sorry. Uh, sorry,
1: Daniel. I, I was going to say, you know, when when you were speaking about, you know, the institutionalisation before, it reminded me, you know, a while ago when I was on a panel with a very young person who's, you know, who's kicking goals now and, and, you know, really achieving his goals in his music. And, you know, this was a kid that had a lot of trauma that, you know, had been eventually removed from home because mum wasn't given the right supports and, you know, things like that at that time. He was then placed in out-of-home care, ended up in secure welfare, ended up in one of the youth detention centres. And he turned around and he said, it felt like they were just preparing me for custody. That's how it was. And that's the story we hear so many times from so many young people. And, And if it was working, we wouldn't be hearing these same stories over and over.
0: No, it's clearly it's clearly not working, and again, I'm just totally bemused as to why that this issue isn't actually a, a, an agenda item, a high agenda item on um, the meetings of attorneys general. Um, this this um, point um, raising the age from ten to twelve um, wasn't actually part of their formal business, was it? It was actually just another agenda item and spoken about in formal terms.
1: Yes, yeah, it was sort of just tabbed on. It was it's, just um, like a last-minute sort of, oh, maybe we should put this on the list. That might be important.
0: And it's just, um, I mean, out of out of all the jurisdictions that have actually taken some advice on this, is am I right in saying that the ACT is the only one that's actually <laughs> raised the age?
1: Yep, yep, that's it. The ACT has made it clear that you know this particular form is not only necessary but it's achievable. So they've released a pretty clear roadmap to raising the age to 14 years of age, and you know, and that's ensuring that social and you know the community programs are in place in order to support the young people and their families, because we know if that young person doesn't have the right supports packed around them in a very holistic manner, then you know that's when they tend to fall, and that's where we, you know, as society, but. In particular, politicians in their positions of power and attorney generals need to step up and actually take some responsibility and not drag their feet.
0: It is 24 past seven here on a Tuesday evening listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm speaking with the deadly Leanne Carter, who uh, is from uh, VAL. She's the Statewide Community Justice Programs Leader at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And we're talking raise the age. Go and check out hashtag raise the age if you want to find out more. Just to give um, people a sense out there, Leanne, of the uh, the, the the type of uh, organisations that are in the, uh, the coalition to raise the age here, we're talking organisations like the National Aboriginal Original Torres Strait Islander legal service uh, changed ah, the sure. record. Yep. The Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, the Human Rights Law Centre, the uh, AMA, for God's sake, um, Amnesty International, the Law Council of Australia, the Public Health Association, and uh, the RACP and you know, the RACGP. Um, that's a formidable bunch of organisations. Um, what needs Absolutely. to be done here in Victoria to, to, to convince? Our attorney general here to do something about this.
1: This is where everyone's got to remain, you know, staunch. And the thing is, it's like this particular messaging that they're giving, as I said, is just trying to back every, you know, back everyone off. And you know, um, you know, what we need to do is we need to actually stand our ground and say, no, twelve is too young, twelve is too young, fourteen at the absolute minimum. People need to, rather than just sign on, you know, and, you know, and raise the age. You need to educate yourself exactly what it's about. And what they did was they went around and they, you know, spoke to different people and they done the survey and research. And they, you know, it, it came out a really high, I think it was like three or something people within Australia didn't even know what the lowest age that people could be, you know, locked up. So it's really mm. quite shocking so, you know, one, it's about educating, but it's also around ensuring that, you know, we continue to say, no, you've made a commitment under the justice agreement. No, you, you know, the governments have effectively turned their backs on improving, life, you know, the lives of all these children by doing this. So we really need to, you know, just stand our ground and say, no, no, absolutely just, not. You need to, you have to raise the age.
0: And it's just amazing that, um, you, you know, in a, Uh, I guess, you know, at a government and in a state where compared to other governments across the place, where, you know, you can actually term it um, progressive. But when it comes to, to matters like this, it's actually draconian, isn't it? And it's really disappointing.
1: It is. And, you know, when when you're standing up in front of the UN and sort of say, oh, well, it's the states and it's the territories matter, you know, to go back. But at the same time, you know, we are trying to address the systemic disadvantage and everything that sits below, you know, the poverty and everything else from colonisation right through in every Aboriginal person's life. I don't understand how you can say that you support black lives, that, you, you know, that Aboriginal lives matter when you're locking up our kids. How can you say that in the same breath? And, you know, that's why I said everyone needs to remain staunch, educate themselves about it, you know, around what raise the age actually means because it could be anyone's child. We're not just talking about Aboriginal children, although our kids are vastly, as we know, um, overrepresented. We are talking about any child from the age of 10 up. And, you know, that that's really scary. That is
0: really, really scary. It is. It's. 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 it's a scary and, and it's a travesty. Um, f- uh, thankfully, uh changed uh, the has a number of really great resources around uh, raise the age, including a, a, an email template and a petition that people can go to to actually write to uh, the premier or their or their member of parliament to actually keep this on the keep this on the agenda. Um, when it comes to uh, the Aboriginal community, uh, Leanne, and of course we know that uh, Aboriginal children, men, and women are uh, are overrepresented in the justice system, and it's certainly the case here in terms of the number of uh, Aboriginal kids that are locked up at the moment. Um, the response to getting the support that these kids need has to be a community-led support uh, response, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. The- there is no way that we know which programs work and unfortunately within the communities, many of our ACOs, as we know, are, you know, extremely under resourced as well. Any initiative, any policy, any implementation, each of the governments, you know, the state governments and that need to work with the communities. It needs to be community led. That is what self-determination is about. We know what works for our community. We don't need someone coming in and telling us what works when we've got programs that do work that aren't properly supported through the resourcing. So they definitely need to work in with communities.
0: And it kind of makes a mockery of the age of uh, so-called truth-telling, doesn't it? We've set up uh, the Uruk Justice Commission, which is yep. to be—we'll um, uh, have the power of uh, a real commission to look at uh, historical and current matters that affect Aboriginal people, and that is more than more than welcome. But really, can you negotiate a treaty and do justice to First Nations people while? they're acting in what I would term bad faith in terms of still locking up our children um, and and not actually enacting any sort of real reform when it comes to critical matters of justice like this.
1: Absolutely. And when you think about it, when we're talking about, you know, truth-telling, we're talking about the trauma and the experiences both from, you know, colonisation, the dispossession and the systemic racism that exists, but we're also talking about the stolen generation. And when we're talking about locking up young people, we're talking about a wave of a second you know, another stolen generation coming through this system. How can you sit there and ask people to share their stories and rip band aids off their trauma without actually doing anything to, you know, to actually address the issues You know, I I could go along, you could go oh no, you you were a good child we could go <laughs> on and talk about our experiences and lay out our trauma and you know and talk about our journeys and our stories but then you know that's not to say that they're still not locking up your nieces or your nephews or your children and you know and it's continuing it's continuing and, and this is the thing it's got it's got to stop you know 14, 13, 12, 11, you know, down, children. We, we are talking about, as I said, kids that take their lunchbox to the school, kids that have playground times, kids that have curfews, you know what I mean? And yeah. it's crazy. And I, I just don't understand how you can justify these sort of commissions and having, you know, things like closing the gap when you can't even raise the age And you're continuing to lock kids up. And that 600 kids, I said, you know, aged between 10 and 13 that were locked up, that was, you know, that was in one year. 65% Mm. of them kids were, you know, Aboriginal kids. Like, 65% of them kids. And that's what I'm saying. The the impact is, is significant and it can't continue
0: one of the um you know in summing up our conversation uh Leanne, before i let you get back uh, to your evening um one of the, one of the most tragic things if you think about it, is that some of these kids will actually be descendants of the stolen generation and so the wave of trauma that um, descended from those times continues to reverberate through our youngest and our and our most vulnerable it's um it's, a, it's an incredibly sad thought yep
1: and You know, when some of the kids... uh, One of the programs that, you know, in the community justice programs that, you know, um, that I manage is the um, custody notification system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people do get taken into custody, vows are notified, you know. So we get the call. So quite often... We speak to these young people in custody and we find out what their story is and what's going on with them and, you know, the vulnerability and the trauma and the disability that these kids are facing as well, just in that environment and then you start to unpack that and then you, you know, you find out that that young person is, you know, in out-of-home care or has been removed is even more traumatic and this is a, that's the reality of the situation of the kids that you know we're dealing with.
0: We're in, um, uh, and it's been it's been the the way for my entire uh, professional life and probably my entire life. There, we just seem to be in in a state of total crisis management all of the time. And um, it helps. Uh, I hope conversations like this for people out there listening helps put um, things in perspective around ideas of freedom and repression and oppression. Um, I just hope that um, people understand what it really is to be oppressed, what it really is to be repressed by systems, peoples and governments. Um, Leanne, thank you so much for coming on the, the show again. Uh, we'll get you probably back in a week or two to speak about something else.
1: Third time, Daniel.
0: Yeah. And before before you go, um, in terms of sentencing, how long should telemarketers get?
1: Oh, if they keep ringing my phone, I imagine it should be for a long time. (laughs) They drive me crazy. They drive me crazy.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for your time, Leanne.
1: Awesome. Have a good night.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, you're listening to The Mission on 102.7 triple FM, or maybe you're listening on rrr.org.au. Either way, welcome. Um, now, the murray Darling Basin is one of our most treasured national resources, but for um, dozens and dozens of First Nations traditional owners, the rivers in that basin are of enormous cultural importance. Um, traditional owner voices about water reform in the Murray Darling Basin have traditionally been ignored, and it would seem that that is the case again. The Federation of the Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations calls on the Minister for Resources of and for resources and water, Keith Pitt, to recognise that traditional owners of northern Victoria have never ceded their sovereignty or given consent to anyone else to manage or make decisions about their waterways. It's always timely to remind government of this every now and then. Um, the Federation in the press release also asserts that the advisory group on water market reform, as announced by Minister Pitt, denied traditional owners the right to self-determine because they did not have a seat at the decision-making table. Now, who better to talk about this than uh, the CEO of the Federation, Paul Payton. Um, Payton, sorry. Paul is a proud Gunai Manaro and Gunditjmara man who is passionate about the preservation, continuation and promotion of Aboriginal cultures. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the mission. Paul, welcome back to the mission. Oh, thanks, Daniel. It's uh, great to be back on, on the mission and, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um uh, the murray daly Basin is actually, a, you know, a bit of a uh, a pet project of mine. It's um, such an area of uh, environmental and cultural significance to so many mob um, in the basin. Why is so little credence given to traditional owner groups when it comes to determining how water is used within the basin?
2: Yeah, it's, a, it's such a it's a, such a significant landscape, the the basin uh, with you know meaning so much to. To so many traditional owners there across uh, across uh, the northern uh, the northern basin and the southern basin, I think that you know traditional owners have, have worked uh, really hard uh, collectively and and individually to to assert their rights and to main to maintain a, a connection to their to their lands and to be able to um, manage country and ensure the health of country and ensure the health of of sites and. Um, that exist uh, across that landscape, and uh, you know, I really don't sort of understand why uh, you know, traditional owners continually need to, um, I guess, you know, assert, that uh, repeatedly assert their, their rights, and 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 for that to, to you know, fall on fall on somewhat deaf ears. I mean, the, our 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 grandparents, our parents, and great grandparents fought hard to sort of, uh, you know, gain recognition and, and, you know, retain that that strong connection to to country and and, uh, for for the health of country and for community. And we shouldn't still be having these these fights in in 2021. It's it's really disappointing. I think, you know, the the government says that um, it recognises the rights of traditional owners. But, you know, once again, we we see, you know, uh, know, actions speak, louder the words in my, in my mind and you know we see these types of uh, decisions being made um, by government without any consultation uh, to traditional owners uh, and you know decisions such as this, um, decisions to move the, the, um, the war entitlements over to the national um, uh, indigenous uh, Australians agency uh, without consultation it just it just it's a, it's a repeated pattern of
0: behavior that uh, I just don't quite understand well what is the um, indigenous national australias what was the, what was the term national, the um national, yeah indigenous agency uh, australian what is
2: agency that? that's 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 the agency um, uh, for that minister ken white has oversight of mm-hmm. uh, which administers a lot of uh programs indigenous um, programs across
0: the country um, have all been sort of centralised through that agency. Um, so, so that that wouldn't that wouldn't involve um, you know probably dozens and dozens of First Nations groups in the basin, would it? They wouldn't be speaking to to, to traditional owners um, by and large within that group.
2: No, uh, well, and uh, you know uh, there are dozens and dozens of traditional owners. I think you know that by by moving that across and and and. Without even doing that without any consultation, you know we were having a having a, uh, you know, a discussion with the minister uh, Pitt's office around the forty million dollars entitlement, and then I need to learn um, secondhand that uh, that this has been moved out of the agency, the Indigenous Australians Agency, without any consultation. Is you know just demonstrates you know again that. That the lack of understanding, the lack of commitment to to follow through uh, and simply shift it over, I think, you know, that um you know we're we're likely to see that take even longer. We've already been waiting several years uh, for that entitlement to to flow to uh, traditional owners. However it's going into the agency, into the Indigenous Australians agency, you know, we're likely to see that take even longer as it as it works through that agency's um, red tape and, and, and so forth. So, you know, Trish is going to be waiting
0: um, even longer to, to see any, any entitlements uh, come, come to bear. One of the things that I've um, noticed throughout my working life, Paul, and, and um, it's becoming sharp focus by, um, by doing this show on a weekly basis, is that the further you remove decision-making processes away from communities um, and you centralise them in either bureaucracies or in um, decision-making groups that are far removed from where the issues actually are, the worse the outcomes are for um, First Nations people.
2: Well, that's correct. I mean, uh, I was uh, in a discussion earlier today, and, and that was exactly my sentiment. If you if you have traditional owners at at, at the decision making table, making um, decisions in 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 partnership, or you know, even uh, through self determination, transferring those power and resources to traditional owners, then um, all of the the outcomes will flow from that. All of the um, the partnership, the um, the, the co design, um, all of, all of the the necessary um, cultural. Authority and, and mechanisms will, will come from that that instalment of traditional owners back at the decision making table, um, and you know that's 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 what's central to all of this. And you know, we look at self determination and, and um, free and prior informed consent, and uh, you know to to simply uh, install that as as a as a first principle that traditional owners are at the decision making table, and um, we'll see the we'll see the benefits
0: flow from there. Exactly and, and you know you need to be able to to, to to move forward with issues like this. you need to be able to, to build trust and you can't build trust with someone via teleconference. you can't build trust uh, via email. You need to be in the room with First Nations people. You need to actually show them the respect and the time that they deserve to actually sit down and have a proper yarn with people. I'll get off. I'll get off my pulpit. Um, <laughs> we'll continue back to the to, to the issue. Here. And now across the the Murray Darling Basin, um, 44 First Nations groups share about 0.12 percent of the water market, with uh, 64 entitlements equaling an annual community of water take of uh, 13 gigalitres. Um, that water allocation is worth less than 1%, $15 million of the total market value of $16 billion in terms of water rights in the Murray-Darling Basin. I was speaking to um, uh, Brendan Kennedy earlier this year um, about, uh, about, about the basin. Um, He talked about um, the importance of restoring cultural flows for First Nations people. A lot of people get uh, cultural flows and environmental flows um, mixed up. Um, Could could you give us um, just a quick overview of what the difference is just for people out there?
2: Um, I think uh, uh, cultural flows um, have have a connection to cultural uh, practice and, and cultural landscapes, and it connects um, land uh, back, you know, water back to to land. I think, you know, there's yep. it's such an in, such an important. Um, uh, dis- you know, well, they shouldn't be distinct. They're so, so interrelated, and managing the health of the country, the managing the 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 landscape as a cultural landscape, and understanding uh, that um, in in that um, what what's special about that landscape, and and how. The water flowing through it gives life to that that cultural knowledge that that sits mm. within the landscape is is what's what's so important and and to be able to maintain um, those 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 stories those those that cultural richness is what the those flows provide um, <laughs> as opposed to a, a, a sort of an environmental flow which is. Um, more about giving giving um, and giving life to to uh, the the land, but it doesn't it doesn't take in that that
0: cultural aspect of, of knowledge and and connection. Yeah, we're talking about you know restoring. Um uh, water within within reason to to lagoons and wetlands um, that have traditionally been very important for our people and are part of our songlines and our stories. And without those cultural flows, those stories aren't ab- able to be told as vividly or as um, evocatively as um, as they once were for for you know thousands of generations. Well, that's right, if we're going to maintain our cultural connection
2: and be able to pass on that to future generations, then those places need to survive. And if they, if they um, uh, aren't uh, supplied with those, those flows, then you know they're, they're at risk and therefore our culture is at risk because um, we don't have those places to to, to uh, connect uh, to our to our history to our stories and 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 um, our obligations to maintain
0: those culturally. It's ten to wait. You're listening to the mission on Triple R. I'm speaking with uh, Paul Payton, who is the CEO of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations, and he's. Uh, we are talking about, um, well, just the lack of uh, traditional owners being at any sort of decision-making table when it comes to water flows in the Murray-Darling um, Basin. What what needs to happen, Paul? What what does the minister need to do? Does he need to um, stop referring? Uh, traditional owners to a centralized consultative committee and um get down in the dirt with uh, traditional owners. is that what needs to happen?
2: Oh, I, absolutely I think you know the, the ministers has um, said recently that there is a there is a, a, a an ongoing commitment however, uh, yet again we don't we don't see that commitment um play out in in these actions, but I think yeah you're you're right. Um, if, if Mr. Pitt really sort of uh, wanted to to understand and, and to be able to um, you know, not continue um, you know, the dispossession of, of, of Aboriginal people to their lands and, and their, their culture and their stories, then. You know, we we uh, invite Minister Pitt to to come out and talk with us and, and and show him how water is key to our culture and our survival and and, and show him how those waterways are, are are living entities as traditional owners and um, and, and like I said before uh, and talk about our responsibilities for it and um, I think you know there's um, there's a growing need um, for. For um, government to connect with traditional owners mm-hmm. on, on, the com- on the country and on the, on the land, uh, and you know, I think there, you know, recent through recent reports, um, the uh, the water markets inquiry report it, it highlighted that traditional owners are, are key players in the water market, uh, mm-hmm. and that needs to be acknowledged and, and, and recognised, and and not just dis- an add-on; it needs to be built into the system. Um, as as it uh, it goes through this reform process.
0: The rhetoric and the the bureaucratic uh, structures that um, are built around the rhetoric need to um, match the reality of what's actually happening on the ground. Um, Paul, thank you so much for your your time again. Thank you for the work that you're doing on this and thank you for raising this issue. Um, We'll speak again soon, no doubt, um, about this and um, a myriad of other things because it's a very busy time in this space. It absolutely is. And and, yeah, thanks for having me again, Daniel. I look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.